Welcome to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. It's no secret that Asia is home to some of the most dynamic, innovative, and game-changing companies in the world. Join us as we survey the land to find the most profitable investment opportunities that will allow you to capitalize off this next wave of wealth creation. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced with the goal of providing actionable insights with every single episode. And now, onto the show. Today's show guest is legendary investor Mark Faber. Mark is a Swiss investor based out of Thailand. Faber is a publisher of the Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report newsletter and is director of Mark Faber Limited, which acts as an investment advisor and fund manager. Faber is credited for advising his clients to get out of the stock market before the October 1987 crash and has been long-term bearish about the American economy for a number of years. He continues to be so. We have quite an interesting discussion today, which I'm sure you'll appreciate if you've followed Mark or have ever seen any of his interviews or presentations in the past. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the legendary Mark Faber. Well, Mark, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, for the ladies and gentlemen in the audience, we are here with a very special guest, Mark Faber, editor and publisher of the Gloom, Boom and Doom Report. He writes at his website, www.gloomboomdoom.com. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. We are very excited to have you on. So pleasure. Thank you. I want to just start off with uh, a news bit that I'm sure you've heard of, where China came out talking about the banning of the ICOs. And uh, this, uh, this Bitcoin thing, which seems to be all the rage these days, and it actually seems to be a bunch of uh, there's people are on both sides of it. But as far as an investable asset class, I think most are in agreement that there's really no fundamental basis for price discovery. So I just wanted to kick it off with your thoughts on cryptocurrencies and what the future of that might be. Well, I think that cryptocurrencies are here to stay and they'll be more around. Will Bitcoin be the leader? Who knows? Uh, as you know, we had the emergence of uh, personal computers in the 1980s and before that many computers and so forth. And uh, in the late 1990s, the internet related stocks and that not all the leading companies at that time are still in business. So we don't know. But I think that Cryptocurrencies will be, will have a place in future. I think in 20 years time, you will not go into a shop and pay with cash as 90% of transactions in retail are already with credit cards. I usually pay cash because, uh, you know, once you pay with a credit card, you divulge also some of your information. So there is a lot of fraud already there, and there will be a lot of fraud with cryptocurrencies and so forth. But I think in general, cryptocurrencies will stay there. The governments will regulate them eventually and tax them and so forth. But I think it's a reality. Now, is there a bubble? Yeah, probably there is a bubble. Can the bubble become bigger before it collapses? Yes, it can. Who knows? (laughs) But uh, I have to say that as an investment advisor, 
and an economist, I kind of feel ashamed that uh, I didn't uh, buy any Bitcoins when they were around $300. I probably would have sold them around $600. But I'm saying this is a world of unusual liquidity that was created by central banks. And in a way, I'm very happy that cryptocurrencies came up because all the investment managers were focusing on bonds overvalued or stocks overvalued and this and that. And uh, where is there a relative value? And suddenly bitcoins and cryptocurrencies went ballistic and all these wise guys they were not in it with few exceptions they may have had you know like one percent in it and now more people are joining the speculative bubble but uh, as i said i in a way i feel ashamed <laughs> that I didn't, uh, catch on to it early so as an investment advisor and a portfolio manager, you do see that there is a need for an allocation in anyone's asset allocation portfolio for some sort of cryptocurrency. I don't own any cryptocurrencies and I don't intend to invest in cryptocurrencies for the time being. I might be tempted in a few years time after they've collapsed is like, you know, you look at the Nasdaq bubble in 2000, it wasn't a good time to buy Nasdaq related stocks. But after the collapse in 2002, 2003, a lot of technology stocks became overly depressed and oversold. And that was the time to buy. So in a bubble, you have two choices. Either you buy into the bubble or you wait until it collapses and you buy into the leftovers. And I think in terms of cryptocurrencies, I will now wait. But I may be wrong. You know, <laughs> they bitcoins. I don't know what they're trading at tonight because I just arrived at my office. But maybe... They can still go to $10,000, maybe even $100,000. Depends also on the money printing and then collapse to zero. Who knows? So it's I've uh, written several times about cryptocurrencies. I don't know what their value will be. There will be cryptocurrencies in future. I don't know what the value will be. Are they overpriced today or are they undervalued? I have no idea. And given that uh, view, I'm not yet investing in cryptocurrencies. But I think that some people have made a lot of money, and so that's why I'm telling you. Well, I kind of feel ashamed that I wasn't in it. No, I think we all we all feel that way. I mean, you know, you read about these articles of crypto millionaires that bought it, you know, back in 2011 and 10 and whatnot for and are 20, 30, yeah, 40 million. Right. 
So, anyways, um, so Mark, you've been in Asia for now coming on close to half a century. You, <laughs> you were. Uh, you were, I'm a young man. Yeah, I'm a young man. Absolutely. You were a pioneer and you spent some time in Hong Kong, where I'm based out of, and uh, you are a well-known personality here in Asia and globally. Um, what caused you initially to, to what, were you, what drew, drew you out to Asia and you basically never left? <laughs> what was the... Well, uh, <laughs> I was born in Switzerland. I, I had my education in Switzerland. I grew up in a relatively privileged environment. And uh, then in 1970, I started to work for a firm called White Well, the Wall Street firm, and I went to Wall Street. And then in 73, they asked me whether I wanted to go to Asia. And it had always been my dream in life to go somewhere where I wouldn't know anyone and nobody would know me. <laughs> and then build it from there with all the hardship and the rewards that come along. And so when the opportunity came along for Hong Kong, I said, of course, I'm very happy to go. I didn't tell them because I wanted to bargain for higher salary, <laughs> uh, hardship allowances. Right. But basically, I was dreaming of going to a place like Hong Kong. So that's why I went. And the reason I then stayed is uh, the economic reason was that I saw early on that Asia would become from a very poor region in the 70s and early 80s. I mean, I had American visitors in 1985 that came and said to me, please explain to me why is Taiwan and South Korea so poor? By 85, they were already relatively rich. But in 70 to 73, in the 70s, I can tell you, Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, South Korea, any place was extremely poor still. And then I saw, because I traveled a lot to Japan, I saw the huge gains that Japan had made since the 1950s. As of this will also occur in Taiwan and South Korea because they have similar macroeconomic backgrounds. And then that developed and then I thought it will also happen. The growth will shift to regions like the Philippines, Thailand, Indonesia, India, China and so forth. And so that is the reason I stayed from a monetary point of view. I saw the potential of Asia. But the less academic reason is I like Asian girls. <laughs> so Me I'm too. very happy to be in Asia. I wouldn't want to go. I mean, the last thing I would want to do in my life is to live in America. <laughs> and uh, in Europe, okay, but uh, I prefer Asia by far. It's also, we don't, as you know, you're in Hong Kong, we don't have democracies. But who gives, who cares, I was about to say who gives a shit, but who cares 
about democracies when you can only vote between someone like Hillary Clinton, who is highly dishonest, and Trump, who is a fool. So what I'm, I have no interest in voting for these people. I want freedom, economic freedom. In other words, I want to be able to travel. I want to be able to start a business. I want to be able to express my views and so forth. And in this respect, Asia is far better than the Western world. I agree. Um, so the point, the next, my next point now, my next question actually is, um, having been here for multiple uh, bull and bear market cycles, you've seen crashes, you've seen, you know, the likes of Asian financial crisis, 97, 98, 2001, two, three, we had uh, SARS, and then we had uh, obviously the global financial crisis. You've seen the booms and the busts, and I want to ask you what your view now is on China uh, and how you've been observing and how you've been uh, advising and trading that market. There's a couple of large, uh, you know, obviously it's on everyone's radar right now, China. Um, people are that are on the outside don't know how to play it. There's obviously a lot of concerns, growing pains within the country uh, that people are concerned about. But having said that, uh, there's no doubt that China is well on its way to becoming the number one economy in the world. So what are your views on China specifically? How do we trade that market? Well, I was one of the first investors in China when it opened up in 1989. And at that time, foreigners couldn't buy Chinese shares. But... Uh, through a company that had some investments in China, uh, they had a secretary and she offered to buy the shares for me. Yes. Of course, she suddenly disappeared. <laughs> oh, it's not a big deal. It wasn't a huge amount of money. And that's the usual story. Cheating is uh, one thing people have to get used to in life. And that is uh, very important in terms of your investments that you don't get cheated. Well, if you get cheated, get cheated with little money and not with the big money. So that's a, a rule. Uh, but, you know, having seen the rise of Asia, and I wrote in 1997 a book, The Rise and the Fall of Great Cities in the World. I think that it was quite obvious to me that China would eventually open up and that it would grow enormously and that the relative importance of Hong Kong would diminish, relative. In Hong Kong doesn't have an industrial base anymore to speak of compared to China. Right. Hong Kong companies may have industries in China. But basically I saw the rise of China and I think that uh, as an individual who has investments essentially in different assets, real estate, stocks, bonds, commodities, and who has investments globally, 
I think anyone who has money should have some money in China. Now, will the market go down? Will they have a depression? Look, the U.S. really took off in terms of economic growth around 1780, 1800s. Then in the 19th century alone, they had 19 economic and financial crises alone. They had a civil war. Hmm. In the 20th century, they had recessions. They had World War One. They had the Depression years. They had World War Two, the Korean War, and so forth. The country still was growing. So I think you have to find a way to invest in China. I have some Chinese stocks. Maybe some will not do well, and maybe some will do well. And before they do well, they could drop 50%. Okay, I don't have all my money in China, and Chinese people who have all their money in China, as you know, they diversify and invest also overseas and so forth and so on. But personally, having seen this year the performance of Asian markets, India is up like 27%. I measured everything in US dollars. And uh, other South Korea, remarkably, (laughs) (laughs) South, of course, Korea is up 25% in dollar terms. So they may have a slightly different view than the Americans (laughs) about, you know, the risks. All I'm saying is I think in the long run, we must find ways to invest in China. Hmm. Traditionally, portfolio managers or, say, wealthy people in Europe and the U.S., they would have 90% of their assets in Europe and in the U.S. Right. In U.S. stocks, U.S. real estate, European stocks, European real estate. But I think nowadays the proper allocation for anyone who thinks forward and not backwards like Americans, Americans, they still believe that they are the exceptional country in the world. Yes, exceptionally corrupt, (laughs) critical, yes, but nothing else. And the prestige of the U.S. has gone down as their economic and military and geopolitical power relative to the rest of the world. You look at the Navy, the U.S. Navy, North Korea doesn't need any missiles. The Navy in America, they destroy themselves. They crash into other ships. (laughs) So what I'm saying, nowadays, a proper allocation of your funds is at least, but I mean minimum, 50% in emerging economies. Then you look at emerging economies. Asia, Latin America, Africa, Central Asia, Middle East, and uh, the former Soviet Union. I mean, I've traveled extensively. I still believe that in Asia, there are some problems but we have less problems than in other countries. I uh, tend to agree with you. I think that's why we both have not left Asia. Uh, 
On your point about uh, the U.S., uh, there's a large backdrop, uh, this trend the thematic of de-dollarization that people are talking about. Uh, China entering the global stage. The IMF added them to the SDR basket. There are a lot of pundits around the world speculating on what the future might look like. Um, what are your thoughts on the Chinese renminbi? You know, our mainstream media out of the U.S. obviously uh, touts them as uh, currency manipulators, but that could just be propaganda. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't, like you say, a lot of people don't actually know what's going on in China. And hey, who is a who is a currency manipulator? Who is an interest rate manipulator? <laughs> Federal Reserve, Mr. Draghi, uh, Mr. Kuroda. The Chinese have learned something from the Western world how to manipulate markets. And uh, in my view, they don't manipulate the currency at all, not at all. They have uh, interest rates that are, in my opinion, too low, but they're higher than, say, in Europe and in the U.S. And, uh, okay, they also printed money after 2008, massively and so forth. But you understand there's a difference how the Chinese debt is growing. In Europe and in the US, credit is growing as a percent of the economy because the governments have large deficits. These deficits are not spent on productive things. They're spent on transfer payments. You know, they collect tax from you and they give it to Tom, Dick and Harry <laughs> who have chosen that to work is beyond their dignity. So they don't do anything. They are unemployed and as unemployed in many cases in Europe and in the US, they receive more from the government than if they went and worked. Now the Chinese, they also borrowed a lot of money and so forth and some has clearly been wasted, as you and I and everybody knows. But a lot of it, like America in the 19th century, was invested in infrastructure. Hmm. In the 19th century, America built the railroads. It was the railroadization of the U.S. And they built canals. All of them went bust, all of them. But they had the infrastructure. So even in China, a lot of their Obor projects <laughs> and rails and roads and tunnels go bust, they'll still have them. And nowadays in manufacturing, infrastructure is the key. You can't produce semiconductors in the middle of nowhere in Uganda if you don't have the infrastructure to export it, to get the spare parts, to assemble it, and so forth, cannot be competitive. Nowadays, of course, we have more and more robots, but actually Chinese, they purchase more robots in the world than anybody else. Right. So all I'm saying is you 
and many people will criticize the Chinese government. Yeah, it's not perfect. But quite frankly, given a choice, as a leader, I'd rather have Xi Jinping over, say, Hillary Clinton, <laughs> who is not only corrupt, but a, a criminal, and over Donald Trump, who I admire his political achievements. Unfortunately, <laughs> he became president on the lowest possible demo, uh, uh, denominator. Yeah. You know, simple people voted for him. But I rather have Trump than Clinton. But I'm just saying, the Chinese leadership, most of them, not everybody, but I say most of them are actually highly capable people. Right. They may be corrupt, okay. <laughs> so, but let's talk about corruption in Switzerland, in Germany, in the US, and so forth. So, you know, we have to compare apples with apples. Well, that, that's sort of part of the gig, right? Being a politician. Um, I want to ask you what your what your thoughts are on current market conditions you know the u.s market by nearly every measure is uh, very expensive overvalued um you know globally how do you see things panning out in the next six months are we are we in for some sort of a dislocation uh, some sort of a pullback or a drawdown Look, I cannot speak about the other people, but and I've been wrong about many things in my life, private life and business life and so forth. But one thing I got halfway right <laughs> is that I was relatively, by my standards, bullish about equities and bonds in 2009, right at the low of the market, and real estate, incidentally. And so if I look at 2009, March 6, 2009, S&P 666, I look at it today, 2,400 or whatnot. I look at real estate, gone through the roof, Hong Kong and many other places. And I look at bonds, 2009, the treasury yield was still close to 5% in Europe. You made a fortune by being long sovereign debts over the last few years. I, mean, yeah. I thought it's crazy to buy a Swiss government bond at 3% yield. They are now negative, you understand? So we had not, we had some consumer price inflation. Mm. Especially, I mean, you live in Hong Kong, maybe you have children and so forth. The cost of living has gone up a lot. Education, insurance policies, uh, anything you go to a restaurant is much more expensive than 10 years ago, it's the worst. But the big inflation, or what I would kind of call the hyperinflation, was in uh, asset prices. And so I believe after 2009, we are in a bull market very long by historical standards, gone up a lot. The valuations in the US are very high. 
they're much lower in Asia. So I would say, I would take off some money from the table. Relative to the US, Asian stock markets are cheap, hmm. inexpensive, relative. They're not absolutely cheap. But look, I can buy a portfolio of equities in Asia and get a dividend yield of 5%. Well, I don't think it's all that bad given where interest rates are. You sure. understand? So, okay, the S&P drops 20%. Asian stock markets will also go down. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> but maybe they go down less and maybe they bottom out before the S&P. You understand? Right. And I have the dividend yield. So, I think, yeah, the markets are not inexpensive. They're actually, in my view, relatively expensive. But in Asia, I think they're reasonable. Not cheap, like in 2009 or 2003, or after the crisis in 1998, but they're reasonable. They're... Uh there's a few pockets of, of uh, value in, in Asia, for sure. When investors look to possibly, uh, you know, rebalance and take some chips off the table, as you say, in, in the U.S., and they look to invest here over in Asia, uh, you know, obviously, we, you mentioned earlier, you got to ha have some sort of allocation in China. What other countries specifically excite you as far as uh, potential for investment and upside? Well, as you know, this year, markets have done very well. So the pickings are becoming slimmer. But I think from a long-term perspective, I think there's still some value in Vietnam. Uh, I live in Thailand. I mean, I don't think it's a dynamic economy and the government has the great talent to shoot itself into the foot. But, <laughs> but what's new? What's new? Other governments have similar talents. But I think valuations here are reasonable. They're not cheap, cheap, but reasonable. The problem in Asia is that the good companies are not that cheap. In India, high-quality companies sell at 50 times earnings. You understand? Mm -hmm. It's not cheap. Uh, reasonable companies sell at 20 times earnings. It's not that cheap. So you have to really be selective and you have to think what sector is depressed. I think commodities in general are depressed. So plantation companies in my view, are reasonable value. And anything to do with agriculture is reasonable value. Real estate in Singapore, Hong Kong is on the high side, but in Singapore, it's more reasonable than in Hong Kong. Sure. And so I think that REITs in Singapore are okay. Not great, but okay. And then you have uh, real estate place in Thailand and other countries, some of them are also okay. So I think there is some opportunity, but in general, if you ask me, where do you think uh, among financial assets you'll get the most 
alpha, in other words, outperformance. I think you'll probably get it out of precious metal stocks and physical precious metals. That's kind of my view. Which leads us to sort of the last markets question. Uh, yeah. It was on precious I'm metals. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry sorry to uh, cut into your drinking time, uh, Mark. We appreciate your time. Uh, gold, you are very familiar with gold, an expert. Um, you've, you've done a lot of work on that precious metal. Um, what would you recommend as an allocation uh, and at what price? <laughs> uh, the second question is easier for me to answer, I think. As an investor or as someone who say you're working, first of all, I think that when I grew up, my grandparents and my parents would never, but never finish any months with any debts. They actually, every month they saved money because they had gone through World War One. my grandparents, then the Depression years, then World War Two. So in the head was always bad times. Mm. And you need reserves, financial reserves for bad times. So my advice is for investors, A, to save some money every month. And of that money that you have in terms of surplus for investments, whether it's in stocks, bonds, commodities, bitcoins or not, I would at least put some money in gold. Now, I'm not saying other people should do the same, but say over time, I think I have uh, accumulated approximately 20-25% of my assets in gold because I buy every month. Right. I don't care the price is up. I don't care the price now. Okay, it's nice to know the price has gone up and I bought it cheaper, but it doesn't change my lifestyle. It's my iron reserves. Sure. I don't intend to ever sell it. I just have it as a, an emergency measure. Right. I have it some in safe deposit boxes in Switzerland. I don't feel that comfortable. I have some, <laughs> yes, <I have> some <laughs> in Thailand and uh, some buried in my garden. Well, <laughs> where? <laughs> uh, anyway, so that I would say, if you ask the question, where would you buy it? At what price? In general. I still think that even after the recent upward move, it's not terribly expensive compared to stocks and bonds right. and bitcoins. So I would uh, some gold uh, or silver. Probably silver has, has, for a speculator, more appeal near term. But I don't buy these assets as a speculation. I'm not interested if price goes up or down. I just want to have something that is not a financial asset. Right. You understand? Yeah. Financial assets, bonds, stocks, who knows? I mean, it's paper. True. I like some 
physical money. Gold is money, but physical. Well, that's sound advice. I think that that's the right way to do it. Just keep it it's sort of a monthly savings plan, if you will. Yes. Mark, thank Thank you so much for your time. Um, the last question is, if, do you have any uh, new exciting projects that you're working on uh, that you want to share with the audience? Any? I have a very exciting project. Soon I'm going to go to heaven or hell. <laughs> <laughs> so take care. All the best. All right. Thanks, Mark. Bear my ship, my All right. style. <laughs> Appreciate your time. Take care. Good night. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. As always, I'd love to hear your questions, comments, or future guest suggestions. You can find me on Twitter at J. Kimmer. That's J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you in the next episode.